Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Hey, what's going on? This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing all right. Where are you right now? What are you doing? I'm very excited about the episode. I've got on the program today Jonathan Escoffrey, author of the critically acclaimed debut story collection entitled if i survive you i was talking about another black artist of his day who essentially said i don't want to be a black artist i want to be just a really wonderful artist and i i could relate to that as a younger writer it's like when you say black artist it sounds as though you are limiting your work to you know like a particular bookshelf and in, in, in the bookstore, in the library, whatever it is. And, and it sounds constricting and it sounds limiting and it sounds like, oh, you're only going to talk about these little things, these, these little questions of identity. But in reality, he unpacked that and said, the, the way to explore your full humanity is to talk about your blackness and how your black self <laughs> moves through the world. And that's actually the most expansive thing you can do. It's not limiting. It's, it's the full reality of your lived experience. Okay, that was Jonathan Escoffrey, author of the debut story collection, If I Survive You, available now from MCD FSG. It's a collection of linked stories. It reads like a novel, and it was nominated for the National Book Award and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence. It was also a New York Times editor's choice. Again, it's called If I Survive You, a collection of linked stories set in Miami. It is about family, race, masculinity, immigration, among other things, and it follows primarily the life of a young man named Trelawney. 
Trelawney's family is part of the Jamaican diaspora in South Florida. And he is trying to sort out his identity, figure out his place in the world, his place in contemporary America. It's one of the year's most acclaimed debuts, and I'm so excited to get the chance to introduce you to Jonathan Escoffrey and his fine new collection. One more time, it's called If I Survive You. That conversation is coming up. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of Night of the Living Res, the debut story collection by Morgan Talty. Another fine debut collection. I interviewed Morgan recently. I read this collection and was absolutely blown away by it. Night of the Living Res is set in a native community in Maine, and it explores what it means to be Penobscot in the 21st century and what it means to live and to survive and to persevere after tragedy. Night of the Living Res holds 12 compassionate, vivid, heartbreaking, unnerving, funny, unforgettable stories that really breathe life into a family and a community that is struggling with a painful past and a most uncertain future. Again, it's called Night of the Living Res. It's by Morgan Talty, available now from Tin House. Go get your copy wherever books are sold. So a quick reminder that I do uh, an email newsletter every week. If you want to sign up for that, you can do so at this show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. It goes out once a week. I will remind you of the latest episode, and I will share a few things that I've been reading and finding interesting. The newsletter is essentially an enumerated list. I send you a list of things that have caught my attention. It goes out once a week. I will not bury you in emails, you know, or send you, I don't know. You know how people do that? They send you too many emails. I'm not going to do that. It's once a week and it's free. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. You can't miss it. It's easy to do. This show, The Other People Podcast, is offered freely. Almost 800 episodes at this point. I've been at it for more than a decade now. 11 years of doing this show, week in and week out. It is a listener-supported endeavor. And I'm counting on people who listen to this show and get something from it to support it. And I've tried to make it as easy to do that as possible. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod throw a dollar in the hat every month throw three dollars five ten twenty whatever you can afford as you move up the scale you can get merch check it out patreon.com slash other ppl pod i also want to let you know if you're not aware already that this podcast now offers video. You can watch this podcast. You can watch me interview my guests on the Other People YouTube channel. So the Other People YouTube channel has existed for a long time. Every single episode of this podcast, the entire archive is up there on YouTube and it's all free. 
and now I'm doing video so you can watch. Previously, it was audio only. You could kind of listen to it on YouTube, but now you can see us. So if you're dying to see me (laughs) and Jonathan in conversation, go to YouTube, search for the podcast by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Press the subscribe button. It's free. It's easy. Follow it on YouTube, and you can watch the show every week. Uh, Another thing. I would kindly ask you to consider doing is rating and reviewing the show wherever you listen. So just give the show a quick rating, write a quick review. If that's an option, it helps. And the reason that it helps is it helps the show find new listeners algorithmically. So rate and review the show if you have a couple of minutes. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Offer me some feedback, whatever it might be. Again, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, if you, did I already say finally? I feel like I do this every week. I go through this list of like orders of business and I get to the end and I keep saying it's the last thing, but it's not. Hopefully this is the last thing. I have a book out. It's a novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It came out earlier this year. Got to give it a plug. If you want to read it, you can read it. It's available in trade paperback or ebook editions. And if you want to listen to it, I narrate the audiobook. So you can get the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's a novel, it's a work of auto fiction. You can learn things about me. All right, so my guest today, once again, is Jonathan Escoffrey. His debut story collection is called If I Survive You, available now from MCD FSG. Jonathan Escoffrey won the Paris Review's Plimpton Prize for Fiction in 2020. And that very same year, he received a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. He's got his PhD, and he's currently a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. His work has appeared in a variety of publications, including the Paris Review, also Electric Literature, Ziziba, Prairie Schooner, and many more. Really great to have had the chance to meet and talk with Jonathan Escoffrey and to catch him at this moment as his new collection makes its way out into the world. Here he is, folks. This is Jonathan Escoffrey, and his new book, One More Time, is called If I Survive You. Yeah, I, I mean, I might as well say I'm, I'm, I'm 41. <laughs> now, I think at the time I wrote those acknowledgments, I was 40, and I, I did spend about 10 years on the book when I consider that I came up with the characters in, I, I remember almost down to the week in November of 2010, and then sold the, the book in, was it 2020, 2021? And, you know, I, I kind of worked on them throughout my, my MFA. The reason I remember when I came up with them is because I submitted a story about Chelani and Delano and Topper you know, some of my main characters for my MFA applications. And um, I was able to work on some of these stories during my MFA and then a lot more afterwards. 
You know, it's funny you say that you invented these characters because as I read this, I was like, this is, this is him. This is his life. It, it feels that <laughs> way. It feels so lived in. How much difference is there? I mean, I know it's impossible to, to grade it out exactly, but is there significant distance between the stories that you're telling here and your lived experience? I think there's a way in which I like to start out with my lived experience and then push things further into the realm of fiction where I can follow my various anxieties, fears, for example. So I'm somebody who left Miami. I grew up in Miami, like uh, like Chelani, my probably my my main character, and. I didn't leave for college, but I did leave for grad school, and I, I moved to Minneapolis. And after grad school, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And one thing I considered was whether or not I would ever move back to Miami and what that might look like and what kind of jobs would be down there for me and how I would sustain myself. And that imagination, that exploration that I, I kind of did in, in terms of my possibilities down there, it, it all wound up very bleak. It, it, <laughs> I imagined returning and, and probably winding up in uh, very similar situations that Chelani winds up in. And so, and, you know, in a sense, I was imagining what might happen if I took certain uh, life paths that my, my character took or, or, or takes in the book. And so I mean I know that's 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 kind of evading the question, <laughs> but you know no, there no, are ways makes, in which that I, makes I, sense. Yeah, I mean, but in, in terms of you know there's certain things I, I I don't think I could totally invent, such as you know some of the microaggressions that these characters are either experiencing or or themselves being the the culprits, being the people who are are doing the aggressing to, to, to other characters. I, I, I couldn't really make that up without having experienced those things because I don't, I don't know where I would be pulling that from or, or even if I had an imagination where I would just make up these kind of racial tensions. I, I don't think ethically that's a, a very good idea to just, um, I don't know, stoke animosity between different groups. But to me, it was really important to capture some of some of that lived experience and really put it on the page so that we can think about some of the things that we do that are, are sometimes just thoughtless and careless in the ways that we treat one another. So you mentioned Miami and your upbringing and like the characters in this book, Trelawney, the main character, his family, they live in a place called Cutler Bay, which or it's Cutler Ridge, but then it is now called Cutler Bay, I think is the way that it's described in the book. Is that the neighborhood that you grew up in? Yeah, uh, it's the place where my parents bought their their first home in the United States. And I grew up there. I went to elementary school there. Hurricane Andrew kind of changed all that. So I moved around a bit after that. So my trajectory you know, very closely follows Chelani in, in, in that way. And then it's a, it's a town that I wound up moving back to after high school. And so, so lived there a good deal as an adult as well. Okay. And your parents are part of the Jamaican diaspora? Yeah. They, I mean, they came, they emigrated in, in 79. So, yeah. Uh, I was reading uh, in preparation for this conversation that, you know, you as kind of a bookish child encountered 
racism on the page in a Hardy Boys book. True. <laughs> it's it's what I remember. Um, on my on my next visit to Miami, which is uh, in just a few weeks, I, I'm hoping to dig into a a trunk full of books that I have where I may still have a copy of that book because I'd, I'd love to revisit it and just see how accurate my, my memory is. But I, I do recall um, reading a, a ton of Hardy Boys and, and then getting to issue number, I don't know, 47, 53, something like that. That was pretty far into the series. And, you know, race wasn't really mentioned very much in those books, but the the Hardy Boys, the the brothers, Frank and whatever the other, Joe, Frank and Joe, I think, they take this trip overseas and I think they wound up in, it was either Morocco or Egypt and suddenly they were, you know, the narrator anyway was, was describing brown bodies in these kind of grotesque ways that really opened my eyes to the fact that these well, one, like none of the other characters, I had to kind of recatalog all of the other characters that I'd ha ever come across in these books and realize that they, like none of those were, were, were brown people. <laughs> they were all, clearly they were, they were all white characters, but I, I didn't, I, I just thought race wasn't being talked about, but it seemed like in a sense it, it was just that it was a, a homogenous cast. And then suddenly there were these, these brown bodies and that's fine enough, but then it was that these bodies were described in this kind of grotesque way. And, you know, a lot of that really had me thinking about what I was going to do when it came time to create my own characters. Because as a kid, I already knew that I wanted to be a writer and I was already writing stories and making early attempts at writing novels in my little journals. And suddenly these kind of blank or default characters, it, it occurred to me that if I were to do the same thing that was being done in these books, if I were to tell stories in that same way, I, I had the question, I had to answer the question for myself, what would people assume of, of my characters? Are, are, they, are they default white because that is what has been seen in, in mainstream literature? Um, for the for the most part, or or will people assume a kind of default blackness because they would look at the back of the book and see my my picture? I, I had to start grappling with these questions, and so that was the first time that I realized that some decisions needed to be made at some point in my my writing life and my writing career. Mm. Well, and this book speaks to that grappling or that kind of grappling and does a really great job of painting for the reader the city of Miami, which is uh, kind of a mystery to me. I've spent minimal time there, which would explain a lot of it, but it's also not a place, like I was thinking about it last night as I was kind of getting my head ready for this conversation. And I was like, it's sort of like Los Angeles in that way, where it's not an easy city to wrap your head around when you visit. Whereas like you go to New York, like if you're in Manhattan, you're like, okay, I'm in Manhattan, I'm on this island. You can sort of, there's a visual consistency to the place maybe. Uh, but I feel like in Los Angeles, it's so many different cities or little pockets and there's not as much uniformity visually. And maybe I had that same feeling in Miami I was like, where am I? You know, I was like, where is it? I guess South Beach is sort of like where the the tourist stuff is. But it was just hard for me to, in my three days there, grab it. And then on top of that, in the book, Trelawney is experiencing 
questions and issues pertaining to race and feeling a sense, I think, of dislocation that you do a nice job of portraying, uh, trying to figure out like who he is and where he fits. Because it's not just that there's uh, maybe resistance or tension you know, in relationship to white people, but it's also, you know, the Latina community and uh, like people are always asking the question, like, what are you, you know, <laughs> trying to get a right. handle on it. And I don't know, just kudos to you because it brought like the city of Miami and the experiences of growing up there into uh, really stark relief. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate that. It's it's a, It's something of a a mystery to me, uh, the question of how to talk about Miami, because it's, it's such a dynamic place and it's, it's a sprawling city. There, there are certainly different, different neighborhoods where you'll, you'll even pick up different, when I say neighborhoods, like, uh, I went to high school in a place called Kendall and there's definitely like a, a Kendall accent, you know what I mean? And in Cutler Bay there, Originally, there was like a Cutler Bay accent. It's kind of changed now because so many new residents have have moved there. And then, like uh, as you mentioned, they changed the name from Cutler Ridge to Cutler Bay. When I was growing up there, people from neighboring towns called us Ridge Rats, <laughs> and we, as kids, embraced it. We we're like, yeah, we're the we're the Ridge Rats. You know, we we embrace it. We love it. <laughs> but then they called it, you know, Cutler Bay. They became incorporated. They wanted to be shinier and prettier. And that's, that's you know, even as culturally distinct as Cutler Ridge was from, you know, and any idea that people may hold of Miami Beach or South Beach in particular, it, it, it still fell prey to that very Miami thing of let's make it shinier, let's make it prettier, and, and let's bulldoze history in a sense but what i mean a reason i wanted to write the book is because you know it's it's like anytime you you're asked to give a a, a an elevator pitch of, of a project you've been working on where you've got two three hundred pages for, for me it's like the reality is it's really in the dramatization of how these characters are existing in the world and how they're coming into either finding connection or missing connections with with one another and for for me that's where the the real heart of uh my version of miami could can be found i think is what with people making unlikely connections well with people trying to understand exactly who they are in a in a city that you know, nationally, nationally and, and internationally has one identity, but um, most people in Miami would agree that Miami is not, in fact, South Beach, and it's it's not just a, a city that is. I mean, maybe in a sense, it, it is a city that is continually interested in in receiving tourist dollars and money to sustain the hospitality in industry which makes it a city that is not actually interested in being there for the people who actually live in the city it's a city that people with wealth from elsewhere have have actually more access to the city than than the natives do and that's a really it's a really odd thing to grow up in a city like that uh, where you're you're acutely aware at 10 years old that your city is not there for you it's for other people and other people's pleasure in particular 
and often other people's kind of hedonistic pleasure. <laughs> so you have, you know, you right. have um, in spring, you know, the, the various spring breaks, weeks, you know, depending on what region college students are coming down for. Really, you know, you, you have 35 year olds coming down and people are saying we can do anything because it's Miami. <laughs> we can walk naked on the streets. We can get as drunk or high as we want. It's Miami. They have no laws. Meanwhile, the people who actually live there, are like, come on, like people live here. We, of course, we have laws. They're actual, like, you know, use common sense. Just because you're on vacation, you know, we we actually live here, and 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 that's just a. It's a really it's a really odd thing to um, to to spend your life uh, experiencing. Yeah. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, and another thing that you do a great job of portraying in the in the collection is the precariousness of Miami, like ecologically in particular. I'm thinking of its vulnerability to hurricanes, and in this era, you know, as we've just seen, you know, uh, hurricanes can be obliterative in their power. They can completely, and and this was the case, you know, years ago too. You, you can completely upend an entire region millions of lives with one storm and on top of that with rising sea levels you know there's uh, multiple passages in the book where the main character's home is depicted as sinking like homes are actually sinking into the soil and you know it's, it's one of these eras when you look at these future maps that's going to be undersea in the not too distant future correct absolutely absolutely and there are already these, in a sense, land grabs that are taking place in parts of Miami, such as an area called Little Haiti, which, um, you know, as the name suggests, has been a traditionally Haitian and Haitian American part of the, the city and where 
developers weren't particularly interested in you know doing any kind of development but what's been discovered recently is that that's actually where the highest elevation in miami is and so now there's this this encroachment in that area where they're trying to make it uh, a place where the wealthy can <laughs> can sustain I, I guess outlast the the rest of us when the rest of us sink into the the sea they'll they'll be the last to i guess wave at us um as we drown <laughs> but the you know the the city's constantly talking about the fact that you know it's it's not even that we're, we're at a point where you can't even deny that it's a, a city that is is sinking but nobody can really agree on what to do about it and and that's something that's going to be you know i i think you know possibly in in, in my lifetime <laughs> knock on wood it's going to be really interesting to to see like what what's going to happen and you know any anybody who is it's interesting because the tech industry you know i'm, I'm in the, the bay area and the tech industry has moved into miami which is causing a lot more um of a an issue for renters where we're seeing things like rents have tripled and quadrupled over the last several years and but what's also interesting though is as people are are, are buying homes down there I, I i just wonder about that consideration like are i i hope some of the innovation that these um companies are, are bringing to miami is also keeping in mind that you know, you're, the, the, the clock is ticking and if nothing is done, those, those homes are going to be underwater before very long. That's what I think about. It's like I hear about people buying these multi-million dollar homes in Miami, in the Miami area, and you're thinking, well, how long is this going to last? And then what's going to happen when things really become visibly challenging? Like you're seeing water really encroach. I know it already is, but, uh, you know, there's going to be a mass sell-off at some point. Or there's right. going to be a natural disaster that's going to cause a run on the insurance companies. Can you get a home down there insured? You know, like that's, these right, are questions exactly. that I have. If you can now, what's going to happen in, you know, 10, 20 years? It's going to be difficult to even get a home insured. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like there's going to be a lot of that kind of chaos in the world, especially with coastal communities and cities. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very fast on the on on the way. It's very fast approaching. Um, I don't know. I know people with resources who are buying land in the mountains, <laughs> right? far from, far from Florida, <laughs> far from Florida. Yeah. So so I'm always curious as well about those people who are are buying these mansions or or you know buying homes that are, that aren't mansions. Just um, you know what exactly the the thought process is if, if it, I think it's different though when you when you grow up there because you if you grow up in Miami there is always a hurricane on the way <laughs> you know that's slight exaggeration but six months half of the year there's always a storm on the way and most of the time you you know you're keeping an eye on it but you're also kind of shrugging it off and you're thinking you know how many of these are going to land at full strength and how many of these are going to miss us entirely and then every once in a while, there's a, a devastating one. And, you know, even as I remember very clearly as a, as a child, when by the time in 1992, by the time Andrew, Hurricane Andrew hit, I was already kind of over it, over hurricanes. Even as an 11 year old, I was like, ah, they, they always miss. They're always on the way, you know, and then, and then the storm came and 
it blew our house down and <laughs> we had no house after that. And I think what that does to a person is it makes you think, wow, like you can have a whole life one day and you can have absolutely nothing the, the next. And you're, you're always kind of bracing for the next, uh, the next storm, whether it's a literal storm or, you know, whether it's the uh, recession or, or, or who knows what. Well, especially with the recent hurricane and I'm, why am I totally blanking on the name of it? It was hurricane Ian, Ian, I was going to say Ivy, Ian, uh, whenever, you know, one of these big storms makes landfall at, you know, full strength or close to full strength, I, and I think a lot of us think to ourselves, like, what would it be like to live through one of these? Like I grew up in the Midwest and I remember tornado warnings and going down to the basement and hearing the sirens and seeing the dark clouds roll in and the high winds and stuff. But you know, being like huddled in a closet when Andrew makes landfall seems probably akin to a, a twister barreling through your neighborhood. Or is it even more than that? Like, what's it like to actually live through one of these big hurricanes? The interesting thing about a, a hurricane is that you, you can see it coming. And so there is this whole process of preparation that, that precedes it where you're if you have shutters, you know, you close your shutters. If you don't, you're, you're at a hardware store buying plywood and you're drilling it over your windows and you're doing all of that. And then you're packing your bags and you're making decisions. I mean, if you're in a um, Cutler Bay, it's, it's right up on the coast. So there, basically that whole town is a, a flood zone. And um, the house that I grew up in, it, it was on a, a man-made hill. <laughs> so we weren't that worried about the floods, but, you know, we thought it, it'd be better to to go inland anyway. I mean, it was a mandatory evacuation, not that everyone, you know, listens to mandatory evacuations, but it was a very good thing that we did. And you can kind of see it coming on where the winds increase and then you slowly lose power. And then if you're, if you have windows that you haven't boarded up, you might get curious and you might look out the window and you might see a palm tree getting ripped from the ground. And I remember the family friends that we were staying with in, in this area called Kendall, something kept tapping on the, the window in the, the bedroom where I was supposed to be st spending the night. And um, the uh, family friend, adult, he, he goes to look at the window and a tree basically <laughs> flies through the window and, and the glass cut up his hand. And, you know, it, it's just, you, you never really know what to expect because you're always thinking, oh, is it going to really be that bad? And then it starts to get that bad. And and that was the, the point where, where we hunkered down in the, the walk-in closet, which was kind of in the middle of the house, no windows. You're supposed to even uh, put a mattress against a door and <laughs> block yourself in so that debris is not impaling you, essentially. And then there's the sound. I mean, there's, you know, there's this horrible sound that sounds like like a train is you're getting run over by a, a, a train on, on the tracks and um, it's howling and the house is shaking and the, you know, that those walls that you thought were impenetrable are, are, are now moving, you know, and there's, it, it's almost feels like your house is going to fly away with you, with you in it. And, um, and you're, <laughs> you're just praying that, you know, it misses you. And there's, I mean, with the thing with the hurricane, like hurricane Andrew, and, and some other hurricanes is that hurricanes also bring tornadoes. And so, um, you know, as we came out into the, the dawn, you would see, this happened especially in, in my neighborhood once we actually made it back to my, my family's actual house. 
but it would be like a house is here and then their neighbor that house is gone and then the right. house is here and then their neighbor is gone and you could see the twisters just you know hit hit at random but it it, it, it meant the devastation could be kind of varied within a certain street or block or neighborhood and your house got got blown away i mean the roof was gone the the most of the walls were still there there was so much debris in the walls that you you could see like there were there were nails that were sticking into my bedroom wall like i could i could see that had i been in my bedroom (laughs) exactly where i would have been hit with like certain bits of debris including actual nails it it I, I don't know that a tornado hit my house because when I say my house was unlivable, but we we were able to rebuild it without having to put in all new walls. But then there were homes, you know, down the street that were just rubble, you know, like the roof was on the ground. And, you know, and that's and those are the cases where, you know, people I don't mean necessarily my neighborhood, but, you know, there were the death toll kind of rises. And, and that's the other thing is, you know, you lose electricity and then you don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the early 90s and I'm sure um, we, we, obviously we have different technologies today, but trying to understand exactly where you go for help is, you know, uh, a big consideration because you might have loaded up a pantry with canned food and, and all those things, but your pantry now might be gone. And it's like, well, where do you, where can you even where do you even go? Like, where can you get food and water and all of those things that either keep us alive or, or keep us, I don't know, living with dignity. And, and that's a yeah. you know, difficult thing to kind of figure out for your family after these, these kinds of storms hit. Yeah. I cannot even imagine. And I feel like, I mean, the, the fact that your, your roof gets ripped off in Miami with its climate and its humidity and all of its rain I feel like if exactly. you lose your roof, the rest of your house just goes. How do you keep those walls? You must have to get a temporary roof on there pretty quickly or some tarps or something because it just yeah. feels like everything would rot. Yeah, and, and, and you do you do just that with the, the tarp. But if your house is not well insulated, you're, it's, it's going to creep in anyway. Um, the moisture, the rot, it's, it's going to keep creeping in. And so, uh, I mean, you see it even with homes like outside of storms it's like uh if you i mean i i just think of people who are who are living in homes that are like the home that this family in and if i survive you are, are living in with that's that's this kind of sinking into the earth you know if if your doors don't seal perfectly if your windows don't seal perfectly that humidity is going to get in and it's going to rot everything anyway and so living with any kind of economic precarity is it's 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 a dangerous thing anywhere obviously but uh you know i what i know is is miami and that swampiness is is always kind of coming for you well i want to trace uh, a little bit more of your bio um you know where you're in miami you're a bookish kid and i have to imagine you were like Trelawney, a bit of an outlier in your family? There's never more than one book nerd in a family, it feels like. Sometimes there is, but usually, I feel like writers are usually the outlier in their family. Was this the case for you? I think in my in my particular way, it's, it's true. My mom was a reader, though, um, 
and and I'll say is a reader, but you know, growing up, she she always had books around that she was interested in in reading, and that might be you know some old classic that we'll all know the name of, or or it could be like a Daniel Steele novel. <laughs> my dad, I, I'd never seen my dad even pick up a book, but he was someone who always had the newspaper, so he he was interested in the news. And my brother was someone who he was definitely more interested in I guess nonfiction or more like my father more more interested in in what's going on in the world through the eyes of journalists versus creative writers and so so maybe we're split down the down the middle in that way but as a kid uh you know the constant I guess refrain maybe or the I, I would always tell my my mom and my parents in general, I suppose, but I would say, you know, I, I want to be a writer. And what I would hear without fail is you, you'd better be a bestseller. <laughs> and there was, there was always this, you know, if you're basically, you know, you, you'd, you'd better get a job, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's solid advice, but there was always this kind of like, you know, like kind of like follow it, but there's always like this, but, you know, we, we, we don't really know how you, you would follow that um, was, was the implication. Like we, there's this quiet, like we want to encourage you, but we also don't want to see you starve to death one day, which I think as an adult, I appreciate more and more. I think as a younger person, I was kind of like, why aren't you fully behind my dream and my passion, you know? Right. Um, and so in that way, I think I felt like a, an outlier, but there's, I mean, my, my brother was a really great, um, I say was, I, I just don't think he's really uh, interested in this anymore, but he was a really great visual artist. And so, I mean, I think there was a kind of, I, I mean, I have a grand uncle, grand uncle, my uncle Alvin, Alvin Marriott. He's a kind of famous sculptor. He has work in Jamaica and England and all over the place. And my that was something that my mom, because that was his uncle, her mother's brother, she in in a in a sense that was the closest thing she knew to an artist being successful and actually living off of his art and making a life out of art and so anytime she wanted to be encouraging of my writing she would say well you you do have an uncle who kind of made artwork for him and so you know kind of look towards his career he he i mean my uncle died when i was my sorry this is my grand uncle by the way but he he died when I was probably 13 or something like that. So it's, it's, and he died of Parkinson's and he'd been sick for a while. And so it's not like he could um, give me any advice on, on how to pursue a, a life in art, but my, my mother could, would always want to draw those lines um, and, and, and kind of say, well, you know, remind me that I don't come from nowhere. I do have a, a family you know, heritage of my own that I've inherited, whether I felt connected to it or not. So let's let's talk about your particular path. You finish high school in the Miami area, and you said that I guess you went to graduate school at the University of Minnesota. Yes, correct. That's where I did my MFA. Okay, so but it was Florida International you went to for undergrad, for correct? college, for undergrad. Yes. Okay, and so. Did you like? Did you go straight from high school to college, or did you spend a couple of years knocking around afterwards? Uh, I went straight to college. It was <laughs> graduated in '99, showed up 
you know, involved at FIU. I think I was a, maybe a, I'd been accepted as a journalism major. And I really just had absolutely no idea what I was doing there. The, the, the good thing was that in 99 at FIU, the tuition was very low and I could actually pay for it out of pocket. And the, the consequence of that is that I knew I was paying for it out of pocket. And I thought, well, what am I doing with my money? Because I'm showing up for these classes that I'm not really enjoying. And, you know, long story short, I wound up leaving that semester and I use the word leaving because I, I didn't really notify anybody that I was leaving. I feel like if you if you say you drop out, it, it almost it, it suggests that you have actively like done something. <laughs> you maybe notified somebody or I don't know. I, I just walked away. I didn't even drop my classes, which is just the dumbest thing ever. Because I was so certain, oh you're not you're not going back, so what's the point of trying to save a GPA if it you know if it's never going to be of consequence anyway. And then I, I didn't go back for the spring. I must have gotten motivated somehow to, to go to return. So in this, the fall of 2000, I took more classes. I, I'm sure I was probably on some kind of academic probation by that point. And, and I did the exact same thing over again. And uh, but this time it, it felt pretty final. And I, I was working I mean, I was working all this time, including high school, but um, after after I, I, I dropped out, like I, I got to the point where I was in my mid-20s and working jobs that I would categorize as pretty crappy and not getting me anywhere. And I just realized, yeah, you'd better go back to school and, um, I don't know, grow as a person. <laughs> like, I, I didn't necessarily think, well, it's, it's not like I was going to like a technical technical school, vocational school. I, it's not like I thought I was going to come away with any particularly skill that was going to make me marketable on, or, or uh, valuable on the job market. I just knew I needed something and I needed to, something needed to change. And I found my way back to FIU and I'm very grateful that FIU was kind enough to look at my transcript and see, oh, uh, 10 Fs, 10 Fs in a row. <laughs> well, sure, we'll, we'll let this guy have one more chance. <laughs> and uh, I really took it seriously. And, you know, I had to start getting all A's to start trying to balance out all those Fs that I had. And I found myself in lots of literature classes and eventually lots of poetry and fiction classes. And that was, it, it came to the point where that was just, the best thing I had going for me. And um, that's where I wanted to spend my time. And I really didn't know what it was all adding up to, but I knew that, you know, I, I still felt I was I was spending my time very wisely somehow, even though I, it, it, it wasn't really something I had in mind that this was all gonna add up to a job or a paycheck or really anything. <laughs> but I thought I was becoming a better like a, like a smarter person, like someone who knew how to use his brain better, which I think is something that the liberal arts is, is, is great for. It's like, oh, I'm becoming a better thinker, but a more critical thinker. It's like I was, I was sharpening the, the tool that is my brain and I can, I can use that to go out into the world and you know, hopefully proceed in such a way that I, I, I can be of value to society maybe or, or possibly even continue to feed myself
Well, there's a there was a. I think I have this right. Uh, correct me if I have the the timeline wrong. But you you won a poetry contest during this phase yes. of your undergraduate education, and there was a reception or some such, and you were talking to a professor at the reception, and the conversation was centered on literature and books, and you found it really stimulating, and you said something that I thought was a, a really lovely way of putting it. You said, this is a moment I want to extend forever. It was just like a, like this is my place, essentially. Like, I like this. I like yeah. talking about this stuff and thinking and hanging around with these people. Is that pretty close to accurate? Yeah, that's that's absolutely accurate. I mean, at the time, I, I don't know if I, maybe I'd taken one poetry workshop or maybe it was one of those intro creative writing classes that are multi-genre so you do a little bit of poetry a little bit of prose and yeah i'd written this poem that was it was a really pessimistic poem as i was i was writing a lot of pessimistic poems about like hopelessness (laughs) (laughs) as one does as one (laughs) as one does and this poem in particular it it was it was kind of about i was um it was about this place I lived. I, I don't know that I was currently living there when I wrote it, but I was living in government subsidized housing. I was poor. I was living in the ghetto. And it was this critique of, of my neighborhood in a sense of like the ways we were kind of fenced in by like these highways and these liquor stores. and But like it, it seemed almost by design that we were kept... Us, us, us residents of this neighborhood were like, we were, it's almost like we were in this little prison or it, prison doesn't even describe it right. It almost felt like we were animals caged in a zoo or something. And, but then the, the ways we would kind of like observe that as, as residents of this place, but also rather than trying to do anything about that, either escaping that or making it better, instead we just treated each other very poorly as as one does you know when you're you're trapped in a barrel you you tend to just you know try to keep each other down in that barrel and and so i wrote a poem about that and the judge who chose it for the honorable mention so it's like second place basically in this uh, award series wrote really eloquently about what i had written <laughs> and I could see that that the judge he really valued it, and you know I'm very I'm very grateful to to that judge. I'm sure I have it tucked in a a safe place the the letter that that he'd written. But then, because he had described it so beautifully, I think the description of the poem was probably more beautiful than the actual poem. <laughs> a lot of people who were at the uh, award ceremony came up to me afterwards and they were like, you know, we're really curious about what it is that you, you wrote. And so I found myself engaged in these, these, uh, I mean, th- that was the kickoff for getting engaged in these wonderful conversations that became, you know, obviously a lot, a lot bigger than about a, a poem I'd written, but just about what these people were doing. And a lot of them were, were MFA grad students. And I, I didn't quite grasp what an MFA was. And, you know, for, for I don't know if uh, all of your listeners are, already have a grasp of what an MFA is, but the, the Master of Fine Arts in grad school where, you know, some programs will actually fund you and they'll uh, give you a stipend so that you can largely focus on your writing for usually two or three years. And 
as I started to, to learn more about that, it started to actually give me more direction and think of, I was able to think, well, why don't I do that? <laughs> since I, since this is where I enjoy spending my time. And as I, you know, I, I understood I was going to start taking more workshops, but I was also still working full time. And I, I, I felt like my education was very much something I was I was kind of like moonlighting doing I was, I was very much it was almost like my little secret that I would go either after work or sometimes I was working these overnights so it might be like I'd work till 8 a.m. and then I'd go to class or I might take an evening class and then go straight to work and then I realized you know you could you're 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 getting this positive reinforcement <laughs> around your writing and, and, and let's follow that energy and let's let's see if we can actually spin this into a life that you actually want to be living. And, and that's what I did. And as you were in college, I believe this was the time frame that this happened. But there were a couple of things that you read that made a deep impression on you, one of which was Sandra Cisneros's The House on Mango Street. And then also the essay by Langston Hughes entitled The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. Can you talk a little bit about the influence and the impact that those had on you? Yeah, I, I would have come to the Langston Hughes essay probably before reading Cisneros. And I was in this wonderful Harlem Renaissance class where we were reading from, I mean, various works and, and handouts, but there was this wonderful um, anthology that Henry Louis Gates Jr. co-edited, but it really it was kind of like a survey of works from the african-american tradition that spanned from before emancipation all the way up through i think maybe even the the, the 90s but we were focusing on the harlem renaissance and uh, the the langston hughes essay what was important about that is because that question that we were talking about earlier that i had when i was reading you know as a kid reading the hardy boys and thinking well how do you how do you engage with the question of who your protagonist is how far do you go into that that question of how a, a, a person moves through the world or how a body moves through the world how is a body perceived how does what's self-perception and how do you do all of that and then put that into a moving storyline that people actually want to read or you as the writer is interested in exploring? And, you know, especially as a, a younger person, I was interested in these narratives that took me to either other worlds or were really adventurous. And and that's what I wanted to, to kind of explore. But then I was thinking, well, how do you like, do I just again, if, like, if, if, if the storyline is the point, is it necessary for me to then say, oh yeah, and my and my protagonist is a black guy, <laughs> or well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at race, and and so and and I'll talk. I'll, I'll go beyond that when I talk about Cisneros. But w with that essay, I mean, Hughes talks about, and and I, I don't want to mis misname the the artist he was specifically talking about, but he was talking about. Uh, another black artist of his day who essentially said, I don't want to be a black artist. I want to be just a really wonderful artist. And I, I could relate to that as a younger writer. It's like when you say black artist, it sounds as though you are limiting your work to, you know, a, like a particular bookshelf in, 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 in the bookstore, in the library, whatever it is. And, and it sounds constricting and it sounds limiting and it sounds like, oh, you're only going to talk about these little things 
these little questions of identity. But in reality, he unpacked that and said the, the way to, explo to explore your full humanity is to talk about your blackness and how your black self <laughs> moves through the world. And that's actually the most expansive thing you can do. It's not limiting. It's, it's the full reality of your lived experience. And, and that really opened my eyes and opened my mind to that idea. Like you, 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 I mean, you could, a, a lot of writers do choose to, to, to not talk about that. And I'm not saying that they don't have the option to, to do so, or that it's a wrong decision to, to not talk about these things. But for me, I know as a writer, it was, it, it, my writing became interesting when I started actually engaging with these questions of identity and of what it means to be, you know, to, to simplify it to what it means to be black in, in America or black in a city like Miami. But then I still had this question of, okay, so now, but then am I, am I reading all these really wonderful works by these Afri African-American writers? Am I then, but then am I now going to rip them off in a sense and talk about like their blackness and their lived experience as they've understood it? Um, or am I actually going to talk about the fact that I grew up in a Jamaican household, you know, and um, I feel like I've inherited multiple cultures in a sense. I have my, in a sense, my, my parents' Jamaican-ness, but I'm also growing up in, in, a, in the U.S., but I'm also growing up in Miami, where, where if you're from Miami, like, it's not offensive that I would say, like, I didn't grow up in the U.S., I grew up in Miami. Like, we always say, you didn't grow up in Florida, you grew up in Miami. Like, Miami's a very, like, particular place with the Caribbean influences and the Latin American influences. And I, I, I felt like for me to not get, like, very nuanced with my portrayal of, of my lived experience, I, I still would have been in a sense, like, I don't know, like doing a poor representation of what other black writers have done. And so coming to Sandra Cisneros, I really loved that uh, she was able to take this family and this, this girl who's growing up in this family and talk about the, her, her heritage as, as she's experienced it through her, her family, her parents, um, but what it's like to be in this particular neighborhood or, this, or on this particular street and really get into the the child psychology and actually grow that as this child is getting older. And then, so, I mean, in this kind of cultural way, I was able to think, well, like she's able to talk about being the recipient of multiple cultures. And why can't you do that with your, your own experiences? Mm -hmm. And then formally, I mean, it goes beyond that because formally I had never read that a uh, kind of novel and stories or a, a book that, you know, each, each story stands alone, but each story is also kind of a chapter that's building towards this bigger picture. And I really fell in love with that. And I think that, you know, planted a seed in, in, in my head where when it came time to work on a larger project, I knew that that was the kind of book that I wanted to write. Yeah, that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, you know, you talked about the, you know, the epiphanies that you had reading Hughes and reading Cisneros around this idea of really exploring racial identity and diving deeply into it as being the most expansive way to express yourself artistically. That feels related to me to this like broader idea of, you know, kind of writing to our truest self and going towards the thing that we might want to shy away from. Uh, like it makes emotional sense to me that way. I think as a, as a writer, there's also a, the technical issue. And I, I'm thinking in particular of Trelawney's racial heritage. There are, you know, there's seg- sections of the book. I'm forgetting which story where he's, I think he's done like one of these 23andMe, like DNA tests and the right. full complexity, uh, the full complexity of his heritage, heritage is sort of brought to the fore. And I can just imagine as a technical matter, trying to like get into all of that while at the same time maintaining like narrative momentum. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the challenges mm-hmm. that you might perceive as the writer, like, well, how do I keep the reader on board while also getting into this? And what I would say as a reader and this is a credit to you uh, at the level of craft, is that it actually added to the drama and it, it, it helped me connect with the character. I could see though that in less sure hands, how it might slow things down or, or make me feel lost. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it could get, yeah. I don't know, tedious or, or it could help, I don't know. I could imagine trying to write something like that and feeling the weight of that responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was such a question for me to think about, well, who is this character going to be? How am I going to, if, if my lived experience suggests that identity is a really complex thing, how can I like simplify that for uh, readers to make it quickly digestible so that we can get him on his way on these other storylines and i decided i wasn't going to do that i was going to actually make the story of his searching for his identity or or wading through aspects of his identity or or wading through what other people are putting onto him um, as they are identifying him and misidentifying him i I wanted that to be the 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 story and um in that and that's in the opening chapter in particular and that way i mean in a way i wanted to figure out like how do i how do i create this character on the page in a way that i feel i'm not ignoring all these different aspects of what it means to be uh, alive and what it means for a character like this person with his racial makeup and his uh ethnic heritage and 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 his phenotypical traits uh and and how all that's presenting and how people would respond to how he's presenting um and uh I, I, you know, for me, it was really, that's where like the craft of, 
um, making decisions about writing this story from the second person and, and doing it in the second person long time where I can swiftly move through years of Chalani's life where he people are saying what are you and he's responding and they're like and eh, maybe maybe I don't believe your response and then seeing how his answer changes I mean I think from a craft aspect anytime a question is asked if it's an interesting or intriguing enough question, readers should want to know the answer to that question. And so if you structure a story as a series of questions, like in a way you are building momentum into your story. And so I thought I took a you know gamble and, and thought, well, maybe this is at least one of the threads in, in, in Flux and in that opening story that, that write, uh, readers will be um, intrigued enough to, to follow along with. And because people keep saying, oh, you are are you this you're not that um what are you I, I don't believe you you're jamaican where's your jamaican accent you're you're black mm, you look kind of dominican or you look kind of mixed or like which one of your parents is white and i i, I thought well uh, the dna test is the perfect thing because now it's 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 less about you know people bringing what they believe about race or what they believe about identity to him it's like this is supposedly scientific data that will just answer everything right it'll just be it'll be the final answer and you know it's i think it's it's more in a sense he gets answers but it's it's a lot more complicated than that because he can't walk he can't walk around with his 23 and me data tattooed on his forehead you know and even if he did i don't think anybody would take the time to you know interpret it and say okay now i understand who you are you know it, it really doesn't tell you anything in a, in a sense like it does but it doesn't he still has to walk around in, in that same body that he has and people are still going to respond to him in these various ways and, and that's something that he has to kind of comes to come to grips with i thought that the use of the second person point of view and you use it in more than one story. And I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, it's for more than one character. It's not just Trelawney. Is that right? Yes, Tucker's story is, his father's right. story is also told in second person. Right, okay. So I thought that the use of second person, especially right out of the gates, was a really clever and effective choice because for me as a reader, what it did is it brought me into immediate close identification with the protagonist of the story in a way that I think another point of view might have done, but probably to a bit of a lesser extent. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's truth to that. I, I think also I, I wanted readers to be able to understand why a character... There's there's an intimacy created by, by the you and whether... I mean, people get really hung up on, well, is it is it you the reader or or is the you in the place of the i and even though I, I feel like i do have an answer for that question i think it's it's more important to think about well what are the stakes of this character pouring over the details of his life and trying to desperately understand that phenomenon of, of being constantly an, an, an outsider in, in a sense and there's i think it's a really intimate discussion where if he were, if it were told in the the I, the first person, I don't know. I I think the the you limits your the recipient of the conversation so that either way, you know, you could see it as this character is talking to themselves. So this is a conversation between 
one character or, or a split, you know, two two versions of the same character. Or the character is just talking to you as, as the reader, and so it's intimate. If it's the I, like, I, I don't know if you're creating that that intimacy. It's like you're you're on the stage and you could be talking to a, an entire stadium, a football stadium worth of, of people. And I, I think there's intimacy maybe possibly lost there. Obviously, certain I narrators are also able to establish exactly who the intended recipient of a narrative is. I'm, I'm not saying that's that's not that's not possible and, and not done. But um, I think the you kind of immediately creates that intimacy. So I, you know, reading the, the blurbs on the back of your book, and by the way, you have like an impressive collection of uh, blurbs from Percival Everett and Marlon James, Amy Bender, Matt Johnson and others. And there are a lot of, uh, I notice a lot of, of uh, in the blurbs, comments about um, identity, about the complexity of identity, about family, about Miami, you know, all these different things. One thing I did not notice in a blurb, which I feel like should be there, is about how wonderfully this book portrays economic precarity. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the stories in this book are really powerful in that sense for me depicting the struggles that not only Trelawney and his family go through, but other characters with whom his life intersects. Uh, it just really was stunning uh, the way that you were able to render that. And I want to have you read from a section of the book that I feel like, you know, will give us an example of how you do this in miniature. Uh, and then we can we can kind of discuss from there. So if you wouldn't mind reading, that would be great. So I'm going to read from a story called Independent Living. And this story, it appears midway through the book. At this point in the book, Trelawney has had a falling out with his father. He's gone away to college in the Midwest. He's returned to Miami. He was living in his father's house and they have this huge falling out. His father kicks him out of the house. And for uh, a good portion of the book, Chelani is living out of his car, specifically his Dodge Raider. And for, for a time, he's unemployed and he's picking up weird jobs on the Internet. But he's finally, at this point, found a, a, a job working at an, a government subsidized elderly housing community. And he's working in the office there. Um, and from the text, just weeks before I came home from college last year, my mother said to hell with Miami, with this whole damn country, the rat race, all of it, let the bank foreclose on her house and dip back to Jamaica. She says she can finally breathe now. She feels freed by the privilege of relative racelessness. In 2009, Kingston's murder rate reached the highest ever on record and my mom returned there so she could finally feel safe. It was my father's address I wrote on my resume and job applications. I didn't last three weeks at his house before the beef got too thick to choke down, so I moved into my raider, parked in whichever lot I could find, the few left without security officers or meters, moving it incrementally to keep gas costs low and to keep from getting towed. 
The day I finally interviewed for this job, I filled a fast food restaurant ketchup cup with hand soap and washed myself at a South Beach shower station, the one just a block over. I aired my suit on the seawall, waiting for the sun to bake my drawers dry. You might guess the best thing about transitioning back to a paycheck is the food security, the dignity of work, or the promise of upward mobility, but it's none of these things. The best thing about a job is having a toilet on which to sit and unload your twisted, clogged up colon without having to fake like you're planning to buy that double McFuckery with fries. And I'll leave it there. So it, it struck me that I, I rarely see depictions like this done as well in fiction and they're not done as often as they should be. And they're not done as often as they should be because this is the norm rather than the exception. Too often what we're reading in the pages of contemporary fiction is the exception, which is, you know, characters who are relatively comfortable and not stressed with money and, you know, bouncing mm -hmm. from apartment to apartment or struggling with being unhoused as Trelawney is living in his car. And then you, you've got the fact that this character is a 4.0 graduate of college and he's living like this. That's the other part of it is that, you know, he's college educated and not only college educated, but a standout student who likely graduated with honors and finds himself living like this. So it's not right. like he's some sort of fuck up who shot himself in the foot. You know, I mean, we all shoot ourselves in the foot in various ways. But, you know, on paper, there should be a guy who does not have to live in his car. And yet right. so many people are struggling in this way. So kudos to you for capturing this. It was... Uh, it was really powerful on the page, and I don't know. I just welcomed it. I welcomed seeing it. It felt kind of like a relief in a way. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I'm somebody who always, this my human side where I'm always I have these concerns. You know, um, I, I think there's a barometer in my my brain that always says like you're you are this close to living out on the street, and I get an email that says, hey, we'd like to offer you a job. We'll pay you to come teach a class for the weekend. I feel like I'm a little bit further away from living out on the street. <laughs> or, you know, some financial disaster hits. Oh, I'm now closer to, to, to that fate. And simultaneously, I'm, I'm always interested in, in when I'm, as a reader, I'm always interested in where's the money coming from. And to me, it's, it's distracting if I don't know where the money's coming from for a character um, that I'm reading about. If, I, I, if, I, if it hasn't been explained to me, okay, this is their job or they have, fine, they don't have that job, but this is their inheritance. Often they're not dealing with um, directly with that financial precarity. But I agree with you that I'd love to read more about that. And, and you know, and just one last thing I'll, I'll say on the subject is um, I, I remember going to my MFA program and for, you know, for three years, I was the I was the, the, the one black guy <laughs> as a, and I, I, and I put it that way on, on purpose. It's, it's I, like I was that, that the one I was the black guy for three years. University of Minnesota. Okay. And I knew, you know, I, and I did have some options in terms of what program I went to. I, I knew where I was going. I went, I went to Minnesota. I, I, you know, it didn't surprise me year one. By year three, it kind of started to feel like, okay, like, really? But I, I wasn't the only person of color there, though. I should make that clear. But, you know, my, my immediate, like, the immediate connections that 
uh, I, I built when I was there, it was always along the, the, the lines of class. It was the people who actually understood what financial precarity felt like. We, we had so much in common with the, the way we lived, you know, across race versus the, the students. And I'm not, I'm not downing the students who came from wealth. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do at all. But I think these concerns are very, very common. These, these concerns about how you're going to live um, if you do not have a trust fund, if you do not have parents who are going to be a safety net for you for, for all of your life, or, uh, um, or, or even if you don't have a, a spouse who's going to operate as that, that safety net. And um, so, so that's very much a, a concern in the book. And I, I, I agree with you. I'd, I'd love to read, honestly, more about that. I, I think the one thing I will warn other writers about is that if you're going to write about poverty, a lot of people can't stomach it and you have to write about it beautifully <laughs> and it's unfair that you have to write about you have to your prose has to be better than your pairs because nobody wants to stomach it if it's not beautiful or if they're not bringing humor to it you have to be funnier than your pairs there's there's this undue burden for people who actually want to tackle this this subject matter and so i'll just put that out there that you know the only way you're going to get that past picked up by by agents and editors if is if you 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 know make it still kind of glossy in a in a way i am i am thrilled to hear you say this because i think this explains a lot of why we don't see as much of this on the page it's because it causes or theoretically it causes readers to turn away mm-hmm. uh, it's too much of a downer or it's triggering because you know someone is struggling with financial problems. The last thing they want to read about, theoretically, is somebody having financial difficulties. I think it's actually false, and your book is proof positive. I think it adds drama. I think there's an honesty to it. Like What I always say about contemporary fiction is that it's often too cool for me. I, I don't like how cool protagonists often are. And it has something to do with what you say. You don't know where the money's coming from. These characters sort of float through life and you're not sure where the tension or the drama is. They seem to just be coasting. Or they seem to be so carefully calibrated in their voice that there's no human flaw, you know? Or there's just just enough flaw that it's right up to the line without going over, but it's cool. I don't know how to even describe (laughs) it, but when I talk about how I felt relief at reading about the financial precarity that your character is in, it has to do with issues around honesty and vulnerability and humanness. And I had never quite heard it explained the way that you explained it, that the way to maybe get around the resistance that one might feel from editors at publishing houses or from readers is to write about it beautifully. Maybe the onus on the writer is even greater when it comes to writing about these difficult things to make it pretty and i'm not sure if that's the way it should be but maybe that's the way that it is <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's how it is and in a you know in, the, <laughs> in a way we might have we might believe that the expectation is well you know if you're gonna put a book out like all pros should be you know not necessarily pretty but but, but you know powerful in, in one way or or another but i, I do think there's a there's an extra burden on on those of us writing about this this particular subject matter like poverty or um you know, in a sense, the same could be said for race, but I think it, there are ways in which race is still seen as 
a, a topic that I don't know. It's like you get brownie points for for talking about that. In the same way, it can. It's like there's a detraction, but there's also an, enough of a community that will give you like points, like uh, th- so that it, it all starts to even out in a sense. But but it, it does feel like no one's really <laughs> no one's really there to to support the people who are. are t- that's that sounds really pessimistic. Obviously, I have I've got a lot of support. Don't get me wrong. I've got teams of people who are are really behind this book and it's obviously doing well. But there there's not like a built in sector of 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 publishing who's saying yes, we want we want stories that are grappling with like the just how difficult it is to uh, sustain yourself financially. And I, I think you 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 do have more of a burden if you're going to write about that. Well, I think that the story from which you just read, Independent Living, as I told you, I think before we came on, it's one of the best stories I've read in recent memory. Uh, it was the, there are a lot of great stories in the collection, but that was the one that maybe hit me the hardest. I also think the title story, which is, I believe, last in the book. Yes. That one deals very well with this same topic. And something that strikes me as I'm listening to you talk, because you know the absurdity of poverty, the jobs that Trelawney takes, to make right. ends meet or to try to buy his father's house. You know, one of the jobs, and I hope I'm not spoiling it too much, is sexual in nature, but it's very strange. You know, he's got to go basically observe these two people, these two kind of like Miami freaks <laughs> uh, have sex. <laughs> this white couple wants him to just come sit in the room and watch them have sex. And right away, that's funny. It's also interesting in a kind of lurid sense. And it's sexy. So that's another way in if you're writing about poverty, like write about it beautifully, but also make it entertaining and sexy somehow. Like that's a tough trick to pull and you managed to do it. So kudos. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. I, I, you know, that's one that didn't quite make the blurbs, right? Where's the, <laughs> I write about sex right, right. Um, and, and odd, odd sex, odd jobs. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I I don't know if you're the type of reader who who likes that kind of thing. Uh, I'm that kind of reader who likes that kind of thing. So that's definitely there in the book. Um, so I appreciate you you mentioning that. And in that title story, I mean, it's all it's all tied up: the uh, economic precarity, race, sex, you know, class, gender dynamics. All all of that is is tied up because we can't these things can't be pulled apart. Uh, they're all they're all operating at all times. I, I think. Mm. Yeah, you never know what you're going to find in a Craigslist job section. That's for sure, right? Yeah, <laughs> in yeah, Miami. yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've, yeah, <laughs> I've definitely done my my share of lurking in, in Craigslist to, you know, at times to to pick up my own versions of, of odd jobs. But there's always, I, I always hover over some of them where I'm just like, like my common sense tells me do not respond to this, but my curiosity, <laughs> like I, I want to know. Right. And that's another place where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've seen these, I've seen these, uh, these jobs that are in the book. Did I necessarily show up for them? Probably not. But I, I, I wanted to m- imagine my way into them and think, well, who would put out this kind of ad for, you know, for, for, in this case, it's this white couple who, they just I, I love these ads how they're described too or like we're an attractive couple <laughs> you know like i'm i'm in great shape and, and uh-huh. so is he 
and we want a black guy to show up and watch us in bed and it's like oh now there's that racial component and it's like what about his blackness is gonna add it's like not just a person but now there's the racial component like that is in this case some kind of added value to their kink and you know imagining like what all of that is actually about and then pushing it further and seeing okay well if he showed up for the first time watching them in bed what happens the second time like how do you because kinks get old right so how do you up the ante how do you how you do have you, him um, you have him wear a hoodie <laughs> you have him put on a easy e era <laughs> pair of sunglasses and a hoodie <laughs> and you send him into a place where that uh that's frowned upon and, and you see what happens <laughs> yeah it's great it's great uh fodder for fiction and just like a really shrewd and interesting creative choice and congrats to you it was great to meet you appreciate the time and i wish you well with the rest of your stegner fellowship at stanford and with the uh, projects that you have going i appreciate it it's been great talking to you thanks for having me Okay, you guys, there we go. That was Jonathan Escafri. His critically acclaimed debut story collection is called If I Survive You. It is out there now wherever books are sold, available from MCDFSG. If you want to find Jonathan on the internet, his website is jonathanescafri.com. He's on Twitter. His handle over there is at J underscore Escafri. He's also on Instagram, Facebook. I think he's even got a TikTok. He's all over the place. So go track him down. One more time, the new book is called If I Survive You. It is superb. Go get your copy wherever you get your books. Don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter that I do once a week. Just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com and sign up. It's free. It's the same newsletter at either site. And I will check in with you once a week and share with you some stuff. If you want to support this show, I would very much appreciate that. This show depends on your support, so please support the show. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Support the show. You can watch this interview on YouTube. Go subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit that subscribe button. Again, it's free. Don't forget, too, to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Give it a quick rating. Give it a quick review. It helps the cause, and I would appreciate it. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Don't forget about that. Go get the Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. Check out the Other People app. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Offer me some feedback. Tell me a good story. Whatever it is. Letters at otherppl.com. Next week... On this program, my guest will be Andrew Sean Greer, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the new novel, Less is Lost. Very excited to meet Andrew and have him on the show, so stay tuned for that. Appreciate you guys listening. Great to be with you once again, and I'll be back next week. 
with a new episode, all right? I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.